Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you here, and for those joining, it's great to have you. We are concluding our series on the book of Ezekiel this week. Over the last few months, we've looked at um, the circumstances that surrounded the nation of Israel and the causes of their uh, collapse as a nation. As a nation, they were uh, completely overrun and exiled into to other nations as a consequence of their uh, really forgetting God and the consequences of forgetting God, which was a, a number of, of transgressions as a collective that they engaged in, which uh, eventually led to, the, to, their, to their collapse. And so we've looked at some of the similarities with Israel, ancient Israel, and some of the dynamics that are, are taking place in our own country and saw that there was just a, a lot of similarities. And it seems safe to say, and I think we have communicated this all along, it seems safe to say that as a nation we are, we are on the downturn if we look at it from the perspective of the types of things that were going on in the nation of Israel. And it seems like... Uh, repentance, which is just a vast turnaround, uh, seems unlikely. Now, there, there are a lot of things um, that, as a country, we are improving in, but it's becoming increasingly godless, um, and that forgetting of God leads to a number of other dynamics, which eventually just leads to the breakup of, of a people, of a nation. And so, um, in light of this destruction that was coming upon Israel, God appointed Ezekiel to be a watchman. Now, cities at that time appointed watchmen to, to stand guard. And so like if there was a city, they would have towers around the city and the watchmen would uh, be on top of the towers and their job 24 hours a day would be to um, scan the horizon looking for any sign of an enemy advancing from other nations that were coming to lay siege and capture them as a, as a people. And so these watchmen were a sign. And so anytime a watchman uh, failed in his duty uh, and, and enemies came and people were killed, blood, the, 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 the watchman's life would, would um, be on his own head, and he would be killed for failing in his job. And so Ezekiel had this job of being a watchman for the nation of Israel, um, and it wasn't a foreign enemy. I mean, it was a foreign enemy that was coming, but a foreign enemy was coming to, to take them captive um, at the direction of God himself. God literally spoke to these foreign nations that came in, uh, and directed them to, to lay siege to Israel and to Jerusalem. And so Ezekiel was called to warn Israel of impending judgment. And he gave Ezekiel a pretty stern warning that we read today. Uh, if you fail to give the warnings to the nation that I instruct you, the, the, the blood of the nation is going to be on your head, Ezekiel, which meant he would have to pay with his own life the lives of those uh, he failed to risk. But if he did his job, then they would still obviously suffer the uh, iniquity if they failed to repent. And if you remember um, a couple weeks ago, we looked at this idea of repentance from Ezekiel chapter 18. And even though destruction was coming 
to the nation because of generations and that current generation's sin, they were still able to repent and, and save their souls. And so Ezekiel was called to, to be a watchman, to warn them of this destruction so that they could see that even though that, that destruction was upon them, they could still repent of their ways, they still could turn aside from wickedness, um, and, and start to, to, to remember God once again and come into a faithful life before him. And so that was always a possibility. And so to conclude the series, and if you have been paying attention to the, to the title of the series it's, as we've been posting, um, the series title is Living as a Community of, of Watchmen. And so we wanted to conclude the series with a consideration of of how we should think of ourselves as, as watchmen to the cities and to the nations that we live in. Now, it's not, I would say that it's not the intended application. We're not, you know, Ezekiel wasn't written so that people would read it and say, oh, I'm called as a watchman, just like Ezekiel was called as a watchman. That's not really the intended application. Uh, the intended application of Ezekiel is for us really to, to consider what it means to live under God, to remember him, and to be in a place of, of repentance in our life, knowing that God is always at a place of, of judging us. That's what it means to live in fear of the Lord. So it's a book that really strongly encourages us to live a life in fear of God and to live a life of constant repentance. But it seems prudent that we should consider ourselves um, as witnesses, as witnesses to God, as witnesses of his kingdom, as, as watchmen uh, for our nation and for our cities in this godless world. We looked at the future kingdom last week, and, and historically it has been a, a problem for Bible-believing Christians to consider that uh, we are headed for future glory. We are headed for future paradise. We are headed for a future kingdom. I don't really need to worry about the world now that I live in. Well, Jesus said the kingdom has come when he came. So the, God, since then, has been advancing his kingdom, overriding the darkness, expanding the light. So this world now is his kingdom, and what the scriptures teach is that he's going to bring the kingdom to earth. And so we do need to consider the world that we live in. We do need to be uh, advancing the kingdom, advancing the gospel. That is the work that God is doing. And we're going to get into that in much more detail and depth uh, in our next series on mission that we start in two weeks. But the future kingdom begins now in this world and with our lives. And so we can't retreat from it. We can't retreat from it. We, we have to see ourselves as a type of of watchmen. So I want to ask the question, how are we watchmen in our cities? How are we watchmen in our nation? And so we read this morning uh, two passages out of the New Testament that, that speak to this, and they're familiar passages to us. We've, we've spent some time with these over the years at Twin Cities Church. The first one, chapter 2, 14 through 18 of the book of Philippians. Now, the context for Philippians, just real quick, is that, that as a church, they were experiencing a lot of internal conflict. 
I won't get into all of the reasons for the conflict uh, right now, but in the midst of this conflict, uh, they were complaining and grumbling about their circumstances and arguing with each other. And this led to, to Paul's accusation and judgment of them. and said, listen, you, you're, you're being self-centered. You're not thinking about the interests of others, and it is hindering um, your one-minded participation in the progress of the gospel. It is dampening the expansion of the kingdom, this internal conflict that you all are engaged in. And it's contrary to being what he called blameless and attractive lights. And so God has called us to live blamelessly in this generation and to live as lights in a dark world. And so this complaining and arguing amongst themselves was directly hindering the advancement of the gospel. And so what does it mean to live as lights? Okay, and he says to live as lights in this in this crooked and twisted generation. Well, in the midst of the trial, we are to rise above complaining about our circumstances and arguing with each other when difficulties come into our lives. And and Paul develops this throughout the book, not just in this passage, but really to complain in the midst of trial. He says, do not grumble or complain about anything. Complaining and then arguing with each other, which means you're usually laying blame on somebody else because of the trials and suffering that you're experiencing. So to complain about your trials... And to argue with others and to blame them for your trials is actually a sign of discontent and betrays an underlying belief that God is doing a bad job in shepherding your life. If we back it up to the biggest idea that that God is advancing his kingdom and has been doing so since Jesus Christ died and resurrected and ascended to the throne. Jesus, in his final prayer in John 17, says, we are, God, I, we are leaving your people on this earth to advance your purposes. Please protect them from the enemy. So we have to see our lives, all of our lives, as in service to God for the advancement of his kingdom, all right? And so this means that the trials that we face are somehow related to the advancing of his kingdom. To complain and to grumble and to argue shows a heart of selfish interest rather than an interest in the advancement of the gospel. And there's a story behind it that's, re- that's told in the book of Acts and that Paul hints at in, in the book of Philippians. So when Paul was in the city of Philippi, he was, a pre- he was preaching the gospel and there, and there was a riot. And so Paul is captured and he is beaten and he is jailed all illegally, all illegally. 
Now, you would think that if, if he was having something done to him illegally and it caused him to stop preaching, he would, he would jump in and avoid the suffering and, and uh, get some lawyers and have, you know, he would defend himself. But that's not what Paul did. Paul submitted to the mistreatment, the illegal mistreatment. And then he wound up in prison in the stocks. And instead of grumbling and complaining about the illegal treatment by the the city magistrates and the jailer and all, all you could just think of all of the things he could have grumbled and complained about. He and his, I think it was Silas at the time, they started singing. They started worshiping God. Paul could see, as he explained in the first chapter of Philippians, that his circumstances would somehow lead to the advancement of the gospel. So he was worshiping God in the midst of this. And what happened is that all of the inmates came to believe in the gospel. Nobody escaped because there was an earthquake and and the the jailer came and was going to kill himself because he thought all the inmates would have escaped because all of the, you know, everything was broken down and everybody could escape. But Paul said, no, we're all here. We're all here. And then the jailer and his family comes to believe in the gospel as well. And then the next thing that happened is that the magistrates came and they wanted to, to, to get rid of Paul quietly. And he said, no, I'm a Roman citizen. You all imprisoned and beat me illegally, which... Then he brings up his legal status. And you have to ask yourself, well, why didn't he do that before? He had a sense that enduring the suffering would somehow advance the gospel in a meaningful way. And so when he says in Philippians chapter 1, earlier in the book, he, he says, I know but that by your prayers and by the Holy Spirit, I will be delivered. I will be saved. In, the, in my current trial, which he was, he was imprisoned again. But his definition of being saved, his definition of being delivered, while he was suffering in prison, was not that he would be released from prison. He says, I am confident that this, by, your, by your prayers and by the Holy Spirit, I will have the strength to honor Christ in my suffering. That's what it meant for Paul to be delivered. In the midst of trial, he doesn't argue, he doesn't complain, he worships. Now, so when people see us in our lives experiencing trial, experiencing suffering, if they see the presence of a sincere joy, and a recognition that my suffering is a, is a small part in the context of a bigger picture, then that is something that is attractive. He says, you are lights. You are shining the way. The crookedness was that there are paths that people are going down that are darkened by deception, and that's the... That's the um, well, the two words are there's the dark paths and, and deceptions. And so he's literally saying, believers in Philippi, 
your lives, you, you've been called to live a life that's attractive, that's full of light. And in that attractiveness and in that light, you're able to direct people to a path of life that is not governed by lies, but is governed by the truth and will lead them to repentance and to, to truth and to light and life and for their souls to be saved. And so that's one meaning of what it means to live as lights in a dark world. And then he says, so another aspect of this is holding fast to the gospel. So we live as lights by not complaining, not grumbling, not arguing in the midst of our trial and suffering. Um, and we also hold fast to the gospel. So there's a couple meanings behind this. The first one is what we've already talked about. You see that your suffering is somehow connected to, to, the, to the means of gospel advancement. And that being saved means that I'm going to honor Christ in the midst of my suffering. You're able to hold on to the gospel because you understand that there's a much bigger picture taking place than the suffering that you're enduring, and that Christ is going to save you in the suffering. But we have to redefine what we mean by being saved, right? And we have to see that our life is much bigger, and that, you know, really that God is always caring for us. I think we feel like God has stopped caring for us when we are experiencing suffering, and that's just not the case. One of the consistent promises that Christ gives throughout his, throughout his life when he was on earth is that God cares for you. God is going to take care of you. He doesn't, he doesn't say that he's going to enable us to escape from all suffering. He says, I'm going to be able to give you peace and joy and confidence in the midst of the suffering. That's one of the prayers in the beginning of Colossians, that you would be able to endure, which means to undergo pain and suffering, with gratitude and joy and patience. That's, that's what Christ promises to give us. So finding strength in the gospel is, is redefining what salvation and strength means. But it also means this holding fast to the gospel. It also means, it also can be interpreted um, boldly holding forth or boldly offering the gospel. So there's a holding tight, but there's also the, the bold witness of. There's also the, the spoken communication of the gospel, which earlier in Philippians he says, I'm glad, my suffering has caused the people of Rome, the Christians in Rome, to be more bold in their speaking of the gospel. And so it's hard to get uh, conclusive which one of those two definitions is what he is referring to, but I think it's both. I think it's both. So living lights, living as lights in this dark world is avoiding grumbling and complaining in the midst of suffering and, and turning that into worship. That's holding fast to the gospel, but then also speaking boldly the gospel in the midst of our trials. I know that one of the efforts that the Andersons made this, this past couple of weeks uh, would, would be that there would be a witness of the gospel to their friends and neighbors that didn't know Jesus, and they used the the funeral and the service and the suffering that they were going through to be an opportunity for witness as people asked them how they were doing. It's just an example. So the second passage, Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, these are specific instructions given to us on how to conduct ourselves with outsiders. And there are a couple things that he says here. First of all, we are to continue steadfast in prayer 
being watchful. There's that term, watchful, like a watchman. It's most likely a general command, this passage here. It's the only command that Paul gives in the book of Colossians to pray. He exemplifies prayer, which I think are models for us to pray. I mean, the reason why you tell people what you're praying for them and why you're praying for them is so that they would, in part, Understand that you do love and care for them, absolutely, but so that they could also kind of start praying the same things. So he asks them to pray for him and his efforts to advance the gospel. He says, pray for two things, open doors, that he would have an opportunity to preach that would be receptive, and that in his speaking the gospel, he would be clear. He would be clear. I think for Paul, as all of us experience, um, we struggle with being clear. (laughs) Sometimes we feel like we don't know what exactly to say. Sometimes we say way too much. Sometimes we think we may not say enough. And so Paul is saying, listen, I, I would like to be clear in my communication of the gospel. So I think Paul had that same insecurity that we oftentimes do in communicating the gospel to people. This serves as a model for us. So we are called as as a type of watchman. Part of that means to be steadfast in prayer. And then he says to walk with wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. There is an assumption that Paul makes that we're going to be around outsiders. That may not always be the case for us, but I think that if we are living our life um, in this world in a way that's not intentionally trying to pull away from outsiders, we're going to be around outsiders in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our schools. So as you are living with outsiders, make the best use of the time. And then he goes on to explain, well, what does that mean? He says, let your speech be gracious. Let your speech be gracious. Now, grace-filled speech means that there is a consideration. There is a a favor given towards the other person. That's what grace is. Kindness, compassion, thoughtfulness towards somebody that doesn't necessarily deserve it. That's what grace is. And so, wise living with outsiders means that there's this this other-centered perspective where there's a consideration, a strong consideration of the other person that's, that's asking the question, what would it mean for this person to receive grace from me? What would it mean for this person to feel loved and cared for and cherished? That, that's really what it is. Let your speech communicate to this person your love and care for them which means that you're not thinking about yourself and your performance of sharing the gospel. You're thinking about, how how can I communicate love to this person? And then he says, then you'll be able to answer each person. And so it's really interesting. Oftentimes, uh, I've heard this passage communicated and taught and preached, and then there's kind of a defense for like apologetics, Right? or answering all the troubled questions of our culture and what they have against Christianity. And, and those, things aren't, those things aren't bad, absolutely. You, you see Jesus and the apostles 
working apologetics and, and answering people's questions and skepticisms about the gospel. But that, I don't think that's what he's talking about here. What he's saying is that if you approach your relationships with outsiders, those that don't know Jesus Christ, if you approach those relationships in a grace-filled way, in a considerate of them way, in an other-centered fashion, you're going to be tuned to their lives to their interests, to their concerns, and that's going to give you this window specific to this person. It's not an argument for us to learn all the best apologetic arguments for the gospel. It's an argument for us to say, if you are entering your relationships with outsiders, primarily concerned about them receiving grace from you, then that's going to help you really meet their need really answer the questions that they have that I think are personal. It's, a, it's an argument for us knowing those people that are in our lives that don't know Jesus. And the more we know them and understand them and want to extend grace to them, the more we're going to be able to communicate effectively to them. That's what he's saying. And so if we look back at the qualities of a watchman, they hold fast to the gospel, which means that our desire is to honor Christ before sinning, before complaining, before grumbling, before arguing. Our unity is one of the most important and attractive aspects of the gospel. That's Paul's emphasis in Philippians. That's Jesus' prayer in John 17, that we would be of one mind so that the world would believe. That's what Jesus, that's, those are the words Jesus uses. So holding fast to the gospel honoring Christ before sinning, complaining, or arguing. Number two, there's a lifestyle of being watchful of the interests of others. There is a genuine emphasis in our life to consider the needs and the interests of others, and that's part of the way we live. And the last thing is that there is a watchful, prayerful life for open doors, and for clear speech. Those are the three things. We hold fast to the gospel. We're, we take interest in the lives of others. And we're prayerful for open doors and clear speech. You know, this last week when, when we, we met um, you know, for the women's night and I was asked to do uh, the teaching for that, uh, we had a little conversation, you know, when the, when the subject of evangelism comes up, it's very common for us as individuals, it's common for us to just kind of feel this burden or this weight, you know. Uh, sometimes it's guilt. Um, sometimes we feel like we should be doing more. Sometimes we don't know what we should be doing. You know, and you read Ezekiel's responsibility and you could say, oh my goodness, I hope that that's not, <laughs> I hope that that's not my responsibility. I mean, it, God literally told Ezekiel, um, the blood of the lives of the nation is on your head. <laughs> if you don't do this job, uh, you're going to be destroyed. So I think that there's people, I think that there's some of us that think that if, 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 that, that, People's eternal states are dependent upon our witness to them. Uh, that's not the case. 
thankfully that that's not the case. The scriptures say that the gospel is proclaimed through God's creation and that all men and women throughout time are responsible to honor God and acknowledge him. They can know his eternal power. They can know his divine nature. So we need to be witnesses. We're called to be a witness. But the eternal states of people's souls is not dependent upon our faithfulness to be a witness. So if that is something that you believe, that you should not have that pressure on you. You should not have that pressure on you. Ours is different. People's fates aren't on our shoulders. And being a witness, as I think, I think just even just from these few passages that we looked at today, being a witness is the product of just a faithful Christian life. It's, it's not something that's outside of our, what should be just normal Christian living, following Jesus Christ, abiding in him. It comes out of following Jesus. So why do we feel this burden? Why do we feel this burden? I think partly also, in, in, in addition to um, feeling like maybe, you know, People's eternal states are dependent upon our faithfulness as a witness. It's not true. I think also sometimes, I'm just going to hit a, ver- a variety of these things. We see um, the evangelists' examples throughout Scripture, the book of Acts, the Gospels. And we see Jesus, we see Paul, we see Peter, we see Stephen. And that, that is kind of our model of evangelism. And we think maybe that we need to do stuff like that. And then maybe if you were, you know, if you if you if you uh, went to college and you were on campus and maybe were a part of a campus group, the dominant models of witnessing in those campus groups were like, you know, cold call evangelism. You'd go pass out tracts in the middle of campus in front of the library, which is what I did a few times at, at Iowa State. You know, I was a part of Campus Crusade, so we took a spring break trip in April, went down to Daytona Beach, and you know, you're you're walking up to people and you're giving them a questionnaire, and it feels really unnatural and weird and strange. And I said, after a day of that, I said, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm just going to enjoy the weather. You know, so I, I think we the all, the predominant models of evangelism that we've seen in our culture and that we see in Scripture um, is of this kind of this aggressive public proclamation by gifted and skilled and called evangelists. You know, that's one of the two models in Scripture for evangelism. The other model, which is intended for the rest of us, the rest of us is this life lived with outsiders, faithful to Jesus, being a watchman looking for opportunities, praying for opportunities, praying for clear speech, living life with a genuine interest in other people, looking for ways that you can bless them in grace and speak the truth. That's the other model. And that is the model for the church. That's the instruction that is passed down. There is no command in the New Testament for all of us to follow the the model of Stephen and, and Peter and Paul. Now, some of us are maybe called to that type of evangelism. Those people will just do it naturally. It's not something that they need to be compelled to do. That's how the Spirit has gifted them, and he will lead them in that. The other thing I think of when we feel this burden of evangelism is I think sometimes we think we're, we're not ready for evangelism. 
What if somebody asks me a question that I can't answer? What if I'm going to not say something right? Either theologically right, or I'm not going to just, it's just going to be jumbled and messed up because I can't think quickly on my feet at the time. We have a number of reasons that we can explain when we feel like we're not ready to be an effective, quote, evangelist. And I think that, I think that, you know, we need to pray for open doors and we need to pray for clear speech, okay? But when, those, when, when the concerns about our performance in evangelism overwhelm us to the point where we have this burden and it's something that we begrudgingly will do, uh, it, I, think, I think that we can let it become a concern for our performance rather than and, and a concern for ourselves rather than out of a concern for the person that we're trying to witness to. And it becomes so overwhelming that we're, we're just kind of hampered from effectively thinking about what would be gracious for this other person? How can I meet this other person's needs? How can I communicate the, the grace of the gospel to this person at this time? Because I've been thinking about them, not about myself and my performance. Or sometimes I think we just feel burdened because we kind of feel guilty for not being a more faithful witness. Maybe we have some standard of evangelism that we have in our minds that we need to be able to, to live up to. You know, maybe we knew some dynamic evangelist at some point or know a dynamic evangelist and just, you know, I'm not like that person. And so we kind of we feel guilty because we don't meet this, this standard. Or maybe we know that we're not really abiding in Christ and we know that we're not reflecting a life of joy or patience and gratitude, which is attractive. Instead, they see in us a lot of grumbling and complaining and discontent and argument and conflict. If, if that's the case, um, that's going to make you feel guilty and unprepared and not ready. Or maybe we're not showing interest in the lives of outsiders. Maybe we're not engaged at all in the lives of people other than those really close to us or maybe just ourselves. And so that's, you know, that's an under, all of these are understandable. All of these are understandable. Why we feel burdened about being a witness. All of these can create a sense of, of guilt and a sense of shame that stifles our joy. That stifles our joy. We're not living up to some sort of standard I'm not like those New Testament examples. My life isn't what it should be. And all these things stifle the joy. And I think what we see in Scripture, whether it's Paul worshiping the Lord while his hands and feet are in stocks bloody, or throughout the, the, the New Testament witness, and I think in our own lives, the joy that we can give evidence to in the Lord is, is, is really the, the, the foundation of what shows that we're different. Shows that we're different. And that there's something about us that's giving us life even in the midst of suffering. And so we, you know, we don't have time to go through all of these, how you'd work through them, but I just want to conclude. The gospel frees us 
to be a witness to the gospel. There is no judgment or condemnation upon us. There is no judgment or condemnation upon us. Whether we're, if, if we're stuck in sin and feeling guilty about that and it's overwhelming us, there is no condemnation in the gospel. That should lead to greater joy. Maybe you feel like you haven't been as effective of a witness as possible. Maybe you feel like uh, people's eternal states are dependent upon your faithfulness. So there's all these things weighing down. Let me, let me tell you, um, in the gospel, there's nothing that's weighing you down except not comprehending the gospel enough. You see, the gospel frees us. That person's state is not dependent upon me. There's nothing in my life that should be squelching joy. My, my status is, as a Christian is not dependent upon my effectiveness as a witness. My performance doesn't matter. Jesus Christ loves me. Jesus Christ cares for me. Jesus Christ is always saving me. Jesus Christ is always wanting to burst out through the Spirit, regardless of our circumstance, that expresses the fact that we are not condemned, that we are always delivered. I think if we unburden ourselves from the, the guilt or the shame or whatever it is that makes you feel, ah, I don't want to evangelize. Maybe it's fear of man. Maybe it's fear of man, which needs to be confessed and repented from. Whatever it is, the gospel frees us to be a sincere and joyful witness to the gospel. We should, be, we should not feel the burden and the weight and the guilt and the shame because we have been released from the condemnation and wrath of God. And that's the message that we have for others. If we don't believe that in ourselves, people that we're speaking it to aren't going to get it. If, if they don't see it within ourselves, that there is a freedom and a peace and a joy, even in the midst of trial, which gives us then a free ability to just communicate, hey, here's the Jesus I know. Here's the Jesus I know. Let me pray. God, thank you for the book of Ezekiel. Thank you for the, the, really the depth of, of catastrophe and judgment that it gives, but also, uh, Father, uh, throughout the letter, excuse me, throughout the book and at the end, just the, the, the glorious picture of the eternal kingdom and of the, of, the, of the nation ruled by Jesus Christ that we look forward to, which gives us perspective into the, to the coming of Christ's kingdom that we definitely look forward to. And so, God, we, we pray that you would uh, strengthen us to be vigilant uh, as, as your people in our own church to live a life of repentance and also to live as witnesses and watchmen in this, in this dark world. In your son's name we pray. Amen.